My youngest daughter is eight and she has just hit that stage, you know, with reading where you move from learning to read and starting to read to learn. And it's this beautiful stage that we're seeing where she's now starting to read little chapter books. They're only small, but it means so much to us, particularly for our youngest, because we sent her off to big school, kindergarten, a couple of years ago to go learn to read, right? And two months later, she came home, locked down, and spent, you know, the best part of two years in that home learning so-called thing. And so learning to read has been a real struggle for her. She's been behind but she's been working so hard and it's just so great to see the joy that she now has where she's now not just trying to read the words but she's been taken into a whole nother world, a whole nother world opening up for her. The Bible is just like that. The Bible opens to us a whole nother world, the mind of God. It takes us into the very mind of God himself and shows us the only way to salvation in his son, the only good life in him. But here's the thing, it takes work, it takes hard work to actually learn how to read it, that we might read it to learn. And there's a number of common mistakes that we can make as we come to reading the Bible. Let me give you three. Number one, we read it superficially. And so we just look at the words on the page and we just quickly think it must mean this. We kind of, we're like the water beetle that just kind of skims across the top. No real thought for anything else, just must mean this. Or secondly, we, we only read it devotionally. So kind of pick it up, maybe just open to a random page and, and turn to something until it connects with my emotions and my experience right now without any regard to what the original author had in mind or the recipients that he was writing to. The third mistake that we can make, and this is a common one for us who have been in church longer, who have been reading the Bible longer, it's the stubborn approach, where we pick it up and read it and we come sure about what it means. And we only read it to let it confirm what we already think, rather than being humble to actually let it shape our thoughts. And I want to put to you that 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are up to today is one of those classic passages where we can make at least two of those mistakes, to read it superficially and to read it stubbornly. So we read chapter 6 verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What does that mean? Well, I've been asking a bunch of you this week, wherever I can, bumping into you, hey, what do you reckon that means? And A whole stack of people have said it means Christians should not marry non-Christians. Yeah, I know some of you have offered that to me. Many of you will think that's what it means. That's what I was taught in youth group. You know, it was I didn't really know where it was from, but it was that passage brought up: you shouldn't date a non-Christian because Christians cannot marry non-Christians. They're not to be yoked together. I want to put to you this morning that that is the right point from the wrong place. It's the right point, but just not exactly what Paul is talking about here, at least not with a whole bunch more steps from what he is talking about. I suggest that you need to do a deeper dive to come to what he's talking about, where we find that he's actually trading on assumed knowledge. He's actually trading on something that his 
audience were familiar with to, to make another point. It's a little bit like doing a Stephen Bradbury. All right? If I tell you that um, I'm going to enter into the upcoming City to Surf race, and my only hope of winning it is if I do a Stephen Bradbury, you know what I mean is that I need 80,000 participants to fall over at the last corner so I could just shuffle past with my knees that just won't bend and run. For me to win, my only hope is to do a Stephen Bradbury. Now, you know what I mean by that, if you're over the age of 25, 30 maybe, because you know that in 2002 there was the Australian speed skater Stephen Bradbury who made it to the final, good on him, coming dead last, but won it because everyone else crashed in the last turn. He skates through and wins the race. And so if I talk about doing a Stephen Bradbury, I'm pointing back to something in the past Something that is still actually relevant, has some lessons there, you've got to be in it to win it, don't give up, keep trying, all that kind of stuff. But I'm referring to something to point to something else in the present. That's kind of what I think is going on in this passage. That Paul trades on one category, which the Corinthians understood, he'd spent time previously dealing with it with them, but he uses it to make another point. And we'll come to that in a moment. And it is, I must say up front, a passage that has been debated through church history and plenty of good gospel-believing, Bible-submitting Christians have come to different positions in terms of what this means. And so if I don't convince you of what I take it Paul's talking about on this thing, that's okay. I'm going to do my best to do it. But there is something that is absolutely clear that we must embrace wholeheartedly as followers of Jesus. And it actually goes back to him. Last week, we considered the dying words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, just a few hours before he spoke those words, he was before Pilate, the Roman governor who would condemn him to death. And he says these words to him. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring is from another world. This world is marked by the rule of Satan, says Jesus. The father of all lies who twists and distorts the truth that we would run after false gods. Therefore, this world is marked by idolatry, rejecting the one true God, refusing to live and worship him and replacing him with any and all sorts of functional gods, idols, fake gods. But the good news of the Bible, the Christian message, is that God so loved this world that had thrown him off, that he sent his son, the king of his kingdom, behind enemy lines, as it were, to come and be the perfect worshipper, only ever worshipping the one true God. And that he, fully God, fully man, might stand in the place of guilty idolaters and take the punishment that we deserve upon himself, bringing us reconciliation with God, the wonderful message that we looked at last week. And so to become a Christian by the way of forgiveness is at heart to have a change of allegiance a change of allegiance, to no longer be allied to the rule of Satan, which often expresses in our context a worship of self, 
but to be allied to the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. To no longer hold to worldly values twisted by Satan, but to the values of the king of the kingdom from the other world. Chapter 5, verse 15. To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us and was raised again. That's the soil out of which 2 Corinthians 6 grows. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you belong to another world. This is so critical for us. It also tells you something profound about church, what we are doing right now. This is not just a social club. This is not just an interest group for people who don't like lazy Sunday mornings, who don't like getting away for long weekends. No, no, no. This is a profound spiritual gathering of the redeemed around Jesus in his word. And so the most natural thing that we can be doing as members of another world. Church is profound. That much is clear and not up for debate. That as followers of Jesus, we belong to another world. And it's the background that we must have in mind as we come to chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. So what does that mean? Let's start with yoked. A yoke was a wooden bar that a farmer would harness across two animals so that they would plough the ground together. Where one would go, the other would go. Uh, The Old Testament law even says, do not plough with an ox and a donkey yoked together. They would be the same animal. Different animals of different sizes had different natures, different temperaments. They would go different ways. They could not pull in the same direction, the same course. One of them would have to give out. And if it was youth group, I wish I'd been here Friday night to see it. The the guy preaching apparently got two kids up, one t-shirt, and stuck the t-shirt on both kids and said, right, I want you to go do these things. It's that kind of thing. He's using the term yoke metaphorically. Literally, it's a wooden bar binding two animals together. He's using it metaphorically. Don't be bound to what is so different to you in nature that you both can't pull the same way. All right, it's metaphoric, but the question remains, how does the metaphor apply? Well, that hangs on who the unbelievers are, doesn't it? Now, there's been a number of interpretations offered. I've already mentioned one. Marriage, I won't linger here. I don't believe that is what Paul has front of mind because he actually deals with the issue back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I will just touch on it since I've raised it for particularly you who are new Christians with us. Praise God for you, what he's doing among us to save. Because numbers of you I know now find yourself actually in the same situation as the Corinthians, where one of you has become a believer, but your spouse has not. Let me be very clear, because Paul is very clear, that is not a grounds for divorce. He says, remain in that marriage with an unbelieving spouse. The Bible gives other other grounds for covenant-breaking behaviour, but this is not one of them. Paul also makes clear that Christians are expected as they enter into new marriages to enter into marriage with a believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, chase it up later. I don't think that's what he's got front of mind here. Nor do I think he's got business partners or friends in mind. Don't be yoked together with non-Christian business partners or non-Christian friends. Again, chase it up later, but 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul expects that Christians won't be cutting off relationships with all non-Christians. We'll come back to this. There is something of an application here. But thirdly, and here's where we'll spend more time, what Paul seems to have in mind is idolatry. And I want to put it to you that idolatry is the Stephen Bradbury thing. So we need to unpack it as I'm going to suggest it's applied to something else. See, Paul has spent a lot of time with these people dealing with the issue of idolatry. That's much of 1 Corinthians, the first letter we have in our Bible. And it's not surprising, Corinth in the first century was full of overt, literal idolatry. That is, you would walk around the city and it was everywhere in front of you. Gods made of wood and stone in the temples that people would literally bow down and worship. Altars where animals would be sacrificed for the pagan gods. We had that horrific reading from Jeremiah where before the first century, pagan altars where children were offered on the altar to placate and please the gods. But in the first century of Corinth, there were dining rooms attached to the local temples. So it's a little bit like a restaurant where you would go and sit and you would now eat the meat that had been sacrificed, but gluttony and drunkenness would come along with that. There were bedrooms attached to the temples where men would go and have sex with temple prostitutes, all in the name of pleasing and placating the pagan gods. And it's just a little ironic, isn't it, that pagan worship always goes along the lines of the natural, sinful human heart of men. So Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, and he says, flee idolatry. Couldn't be much clearer. Flee from it. Don't flirt with it. Run from it. In its various forms, sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, he deals with that. To not participate in the eating of food that knowingly has been sacrificed to idols. That's chapter 8 and 10. In chapter 11, he has to come down on them as they celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper because they're bringing their pagan practices to it. Greed, gluttony, drunkenness. Paul is clearly talking about idolatry. It makes sense of these five contrasts there in verse 14 through to 16. Righteousness versus wickedness. Light versus darkness. Christ versus Belial, which is a Hebrew name for Satan. Faithful versus unfaithful. Temple of God versus the temple of idols. Then Paul goes on, verse 16, to list a number of Old Testament scriptures. And again, if you're new or even not so new to the Bible, but aren't aware of why the Bible uh, sets out words differently. In my Bible, you see they're kind of set out, they're indented, there's more space around them. That's a cue, the editors have done that, that Paul is now actually quoting from the Old Testament. The scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and he he quotes a bunch of them that are clearly connected to idolatry. The ancient nation of Israel that God had lovingly won to himself, brought to the land and said, I will be your God, this will be your place, we will live together. They said, nah. They actually literally say, we want to be like the nations who serve wood and stone. God then says, well, yes, you will, and permits them to go down that path. And he says, I will punish you. By driving you out of the land into exile among the nations. But 
then I will graciously gather you back to myself. And in the wonderful reading that we just had from Jeremiah 32, the Lord says, I will give them singleness of heart to always fear me. Isaiah 52 verse 11, as he speaks about the context of coming out of exile in Babylon back to the promised land, he says, come out and touch no unclean thing. Come out and be pure. It was the touching and the clinging to idolatry that had sent you into exile as God graciously brings you back. Come out, touch it no more. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 52 there in verse 17. Come out from them, be separate, says the Lord. And Paul finishes chapter 7 verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence to God. Paul is clearly speaking about idolatry. Literal idolatry, firstly and foremostly, but also metaphorical idolatry. So that what I put to you, he's saying there in verse, seven, verse 14 is, do not be yoked to the idolatry of unbelievers. Christians, people in Corinth, followers of Jesus, do not be yoked to the idolatry of unbelievers. Now, we're yet to still come to what I think the primary application of that in mind for Paul is, and we'll come to that in a moment, but... Before we go any further, let's just pause and consider what it might mean for us to not be yoked to the idolatry around us. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky compared to the Corinthians where in Corinth it's literal idolatry, temples and statues and food and temple prostitutes and so on and so on. Paul says, it's a bit tricky for us because it's not as overt, it's not as literal for us. But it is still there, and I put it to you, increasingly so, especially in our schools. We have an increasing number of smoking ceremonies happening in public settings, indigenous smoking ceremonies. Many of our kids, at least in state schools, I'm not sure about the private schools, my kids are in a state school, many kids this week will have the NADOC celebrations. Some of them were last week, some of them will be this week. And so it will be the case at the school that my, the primary school my kids are at, there'll be a smoking ceremony where the kids, my kids, now hear this, I mean what I said last week, that I long for and live in hope of further reconciliation between Australia's First Nations people and the latecomers. Uh, That we would see justice, that we would see the gap closed, that we would see racism dealt with. But I object to my kids being so strongly pulled into these smoking ceremonies that they are being told it is disrespectful for them to not take part in it unless they have asthma. That they are being told, you need to be part of this smoking ceremony. Now, don't take it just from me, but these are the words of an Aboriginal man, Anderson George Belang. He's a Christian man. He lives in Canberra. He says this of smoking ceremonies. As a non-Indigenous, it seems like a harmless act. 
But as an indigenous, to my knowledge, it is about sending the dead spirit back home to his or her country to make it peaceful for people not to get attacked by the dead person's spirit. It is connected to spiritual things and that is why I do not join in from an indigenous Christian man. Now, it might be the case, and I suspect that it is, that there, there can be a line drawn between observing a ceremony to still be present, but then actually participating in it, taking the smoke upon yourselves, believing that it will wash any bad spirit away. Just like the argument about food sacrifice to idols is a complex one in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 10, chase it up later, where in chapter 8 particularly, food sacrifice to idols is a nothing. The, the idols aren't true. They're fake gods. They're false gods. It's a nothing. It's just food. We're no better if we do or we don't. But chapter 10, Paul speaks about it being offered to demons and not wanting the Corinthians to take part in that pagan worship idolatry offered to demons. So there's some nuance and some complexity about it. And I'm talking to my kids about how they might handle the smoking ceremonies. But pagan idolatry is around us, is among us. And whilst we long to see reconciliation move ahead, we cannot as Christians just unquestionably embrace and endorse everything about Aboriginal culture because it's pagan idolatry. Paul says, flee from it, have nothing to do with it. Now, we could go on about many other metaphoric idols of our day because remember Jesus who says you cannot serve both God and mammon, money. You must make a choice. You must serve one or the other. There's Jesus actually taking something that is kind of literal, it's just money, and elevating it to a metaphoric idol, which is what we do. There's many, of course, um, work. For some of us, it might mean that we don't work with, or for certain unbelievers, because they will drag us where the Lord would not be pleased. This is where I think it is a valid application of this passage. I take it that Paul would say, I meant to Christian on the coast, do not bind yourself in such a way to the unbelieving idolatry around you that you are pulled away from your Lord, who loves you, who has called you to live for his otherworldly kingdom. And so work, and possibly increasingly for us, may be something that we need to make decisions to step away from. For some of us, we need to not work as much because we've turned the work, the career, the status into a great idol. Or, connected to it, greed. You cannot serve both God and money, says Jesus. Some of us are working so much to fund the pagan lifestyle of the world around us, fueled by the values of the world around us. Some of us may need to put some distance between friendships because as we continue in these friendships, we find ourselves yoked and and pulled away from the Lord. And so because our allegiance is to him, we will actually make hard decisions with relationships. These are all valid applications 
as we consider about what the modern, particularly metaphoric, idolatry around us might be. But we need to keep moving because I want to put to you that there is a primary application that Paul has in mind about this idolatry. You know, the, the kind of Stephen Bradbury thing that he's now applying to false teachers. I put it to you that the big thing Paul has in mind, chapter 6, verse 14, is do not be yoked together with false teachers. And here's why I think that's the case. See, what is the context of 2 Corinthians been so far? This is one of the helpful things of us just kind of working through bit by bit books of the Bible. We, we get to see the flow and the context. We're not just kind of dipping in for inspirational moments. Well, get your Bible. Come back to chapter 1, verse 12. Let's have a flick through. Paul introduces a key reason for him writing. He says, Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity, we have done so not relying on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. He introduces right there one of the key themes through the letter that he, Paul, has ministered by God's grace, not by worldly wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says... Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. We're not in it for ourselves, to get famous, to get rich. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Chapter 5, verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And chapter 6, verse 11, the most immediate context to our passage, Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Verse 13, As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts to us also. Do you see what Paul is doing through this letter? He is defending his ministry as being the ministry of a legit apostle from God, one sent by God to speak on behalf of God and therefore with the power of God. And it was Paul who came to Corinth who preached the gospel where this church was born. These people are his spiritual children. But he's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of those who have come in since Paul has left. And it's a ministry of teachers that is of the world. But it has been so attractive to the Corinthians that it has won their heart and pulled them away from Paul. And so one of the key reasons Paul writes is so that the Corinthians might be reconciled to Paul, the apostle. And so reconciled to God as we looked at last week chapter 6 verse 13 listen to his appeal as a fair exchange I speak as to my children open wide your hearts also verse 14 do not be yoked together with unbelievers are we really to think that Paul has just suddenly gone hey don't marry non-christians If you just do a quick superficial read or if you're 
I'm willing to let go of what you've always thought and been taught. Well, you can't say anything but that. But I put it to you, when you see the context of the letter, Paul hasn't just randomly lobbed a new topic of marriage in here. He's dealt with that in the first letter, 1 Corinthians. I put it to you, along with other scholars, that Paul has false teachers front of mind and he portrays them as unbelievers and they are so serious that it can be compared with idolatry. The letter goes on to support this view. Flick over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 4, where Paul talks about his weapons. Chapter 10, verse 4, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Verse 7, You, Corinthians, are judging by appearances. Now come over to chapter 11, verse 2. And this really brings it home, what I think he's talking about in chapter 6. Chapter 11, verse 2, he says, I, Paul, am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Notice he's using purity language as opposed to sexual immorality and idolatry language. He is so concerned that they remain faithful for Christ. And he goes on, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, the twisting of truth by Satan, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He is so concerned for their minds that they have been led astray, the twisting of truth by Satan. 4 verse 4, If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached... Or if you received a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles. And for the first time in the letters, they they kind of get named that, super apostles. Those who have come in after Paul and kind of claim to be Mark II, the bigger, better version than Paul, Peter, John and so on. And we note that as Paul has just spoken in chapter 6, he uses the similar language, verse 13 and 15. He says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Note the connections there back into chapter 6 of light, pretend light, which is actually darkness. Satan, the workers of Satan against Christ. And so, back to chapter 6, verse 14, here is the big thing I think Paul had for the Corinthians and so for us. Do not bind yourself to teachers and teaching that hold out a gospel other than Paul's. A Jesus other than the apostolic Jesus. There's the big message. He's so concerned for the minds of Christians. Now notice here how subtle the warning is. He's not warning the Corinthians against the teaching of of, well, of Satan, of Belial, of the pagan gods. It's not as if he's teaching, you know, hey, uh, be, be wary of Islam. Be wary of the teaching of Buddhism. 
No, no, he's warring against what is dressed up to be Christian, but is actually empty of Christ. And this is where we really need to listen up, because it sounds Christian. It, at a distance, looks Christian. And Paul says, can be so polluting, corrupting, that it would be defiled as idolatry. I mean, you ask any builder that if something isn't completely square, if it's just a few degrees off being square, if you keep going, you're going to end up a long way from where you need to be. When you put something, I did this, I stuck a post in the ground, a shade sail post, and I set it at just five or so degrees off vertical. And it's such a long post, and my wife said, wow, look how far you've lent the post over. I said, it's only five degrees. No, really? What doesn't seem like much at such a short distance, when you follow it, it heads a long way from where it needs to be. Paul is warning of Christian teaching, which may only seem just a few degrees off. Surely that's okay, isn't it? But over the distance can be described as idolatry. And the defining feature of the false teaching, it's this worldly, not otherworldly. It brings the value of this world, of Satan, of deceit, which is twisted, of the here and now, as opposed to the values of the king of the kingdom, which is otherworldly. Now, for the Christians in first century Greco-Roman culture, the Corinthians, it was despising the way of weakness and suffering. That was particularly how the worldly value was given expression. Weakness and suffering, pathetic. You need to rise up in strength and victory. And so the Corinthians and the teachers who had come in were tapping into this and saying, yes, Jesus, but victorious Jesus. Victorious living for Jesus. And Paul desperately works to win them back to himself, that they might see it's actually the ordinary even the weak and the suffering, which has extraordinary spiritual value. And so how might this apply to us if this is the big thing that he has in mind? Do not yoke yourself with false teaching. Well, let me give you two forms of it that is prevalent in our context. Number one, it's the same of the Corinthian. It's the prosperity teaching. It's the one that clings to the values of this world of success and victory and blessing, and wealth, and abundance, and health, and comfort. And if you don't have that, the problem is your faith. Oh, it is such a cruel teaching. And it prepares you so poorly to actually live in this world and suffer. Now, here's the thing. Now, I know this happens because some of you have been honest enough to tell me, you go, okay, EV's my church, and I appreciate EV. And, but you guys, you talk a lot about suffering. You talk about, a lot about weakness, and you talk... Evie's going to be my, my meat and three veg, but I go elsewhere for the dessert. I go elsewhere for the special sauce. Some of you have been so honest to say that. Now, of course, we live in an age where you can go anywhere like that, pull it out of your pocket, and you are tapped into any teaching, which is quite bizarre, considering that for 2,000 years, God said all God's people need was a Bible and an ordinary pastor. 
And all of a sudden, we have access to anything and everything. The most impressive, inspirational preachers you can imagine. The cleverest, the wow guys. And you go, all I've got is, and I can go elsewhere. Friends, you don't have to stay at EV. But you must not yoke yourself to teaching that is so worldly that it can be described as idolatrous and siding with Satan. The ordinary (laughs) is the extraordinary. Be wary of the Corinthian teaching. But here's actually the second form of false teaching that I actually think more of us attempted to be drawn towards. And it's the inoffensive teaching. It's the teaching that preaches Jesus, the love of God, but just steers away from any of the edges that our community, our culture find just too rough and too harsh. And so we just don't go there. And if we go there, we start rubbing them off and so on. I think that's the big temptation for many of us. And no surprise, for life in the kingdom is otherworldly. And so is it any surprise that as God says, this is who I am and this is how you are to live, my people, that it's going to clash at points, many even, with our culture. The kingdoms, the values of the kingdom subvert the values of an idolatrous world. And so be wary as you go, oh, I just want a teaching that doesn't offend. I'm mindful that already this morning some of you are feeling uncomfortable even more with the way that I've spoken about Aboriginal spirituality and culture. I know that. And there's this increasing temperature because of the air that we breathe that we ought not say anything that would offend. I think this is our big temptation and increasingly so. Of course, we don't set out to be... uh, We don't set out to be offensive. We set out to hold out the word of God that unapologetically and inevitably will offend. And so do not yoke yourself with a teaching that will just duck and weave and say only nice things. To be accepted by a world that's marked by idolatry... (laughs) I take it this is a call for us to stiffen our backbones, to continue to give ourselves to the Word of God, unadulterated, unpopular, life-giving, glorious, that the God who has loved us so much has gone to these lengths that we might live with him, that he might live with us, that he might walk with us, that he might be our God. Friends, he is the God of the kingdom of another world. That's who you are. That's who I am. Do not be yoked to the unbelieving idolatry of this world in all of its forms, particularly in its teaching. Let me pray for us in light of that right now. Father, we, we confess that we don't always live in the world as those who have been won out of it. We confess there, there is so much of the world that we find so attractive and yet you have said is not of you. And so we repent of that.
We are sorry and ask for your forgiveness. In literal, metaphoric idolatry, in being drawn into teaching that is not about the true Jesus, about his kingdom, please forgive us. And we ask, Father, that you would increasingly give us single-heartedness for you. For that is your promise in the new covenant that with your spirit we might have hearts for you. And we ask that you might preserve us for that day when we will be presented to your son as a pure virgin. It is only by his merits that we have confidence in this day. But we afresh today say, Lord, we long for that day. Keep us for that day. Protect us for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.